Following the Civil War, the state of Michigan saw many gains, especially in the timber industry. In the 1880s, lumbering reached its peak, and the amount of wealth being produced by Michigan's lumber made hundreds, if not thousands, of millionaires. Muskegon was one of the leading towns of this lumbering boom. While the lumber barons who were in charge of the mills realized their dreams of wealth, their workers still struggled with their daily lives. It was this rift that would lead to a series of labor strikes known as the 10 Hours or No Sawdust Strikes throughout Michigan in a four-year period. In each lumbering town, this strike took on different forms and had varying results. Today, I will bring you how this story played out in Muskegon. At the start of the 1880s, most Michigan millmen worked 11 to 12 hours a day, six days a week, in poorly ventilated buildings that were hot, vermin-infested, and full of dangers such as whirling metal blades and splinters. Added to this danger was the fact that insurance, to cover any accident or injury, was rare and rarely paid due to it being considered carelessness of the workers for causing such accident. Besides the conditions being rough, the pay wasn't the best either. Most mill workers could expect to get about $1.50 a day. Even adjusted for inflation, that equals about $40 a day today. The other caveat to this is that pay was not weekly. In Muskegon, some mill workers were usually paid monthly. This meant that to survive until payday, you had to shop at the company store where they let you buy on credit. However, since your shopping options were limited, prices were not always fair. For housing, most lived in boarding houses, which, once again, were owned and paid for on credit given by the lumber baron. So needless to say, being employed in the lumbering business was a tough gig and workers would eventually start fighting for better wages, hours, and benefits as they saw the luxury the lumber barons had. In Muskegon, the 10 hours or no sawdust strike began with the booming ground workers. These were the men who sorted and delivered logs to the mills from the mouth of the Muskegon River. In September of 1881, they petitioned the Muskegon Booming Company for a wage increase of 25 cents and also to be paid full time, by which they meant they would receive a day's pay even if the weather didn't allow them to work. So if there was wind or rain that made it too dangerous, they would still get paid for that. Since there was much lumber to be sorted, the booming company agreed to their demands for wages, but balked at the full-time clause. Eventually, after a short strike, this demand was met as well. This victory emboldened the mill workers to their main cause, namely the 10-hour workday. On October 2nd, a meeting was organized in downtown Muskegon at the Liberty Pole on Western and 1st Street, and an estimated 3,000 met. This meeting was organized by Nelson DeLong, the lead prosecutor of Muskegon County, and Francis W. Cook, another lawyer. DeLong and Cook will become lead players in the future of this strike. Now you might be wondering, why did they get involved? Here are two men of law not involved in lumbering in any way, and not even of the same class as the strikers. This issue was brought up by the papers at the time as well. They attributed it to the aspirations of DeLong and Cook for political office, and indeed, they would both later run for office and win with the help of the labor vote. The more cynical at the time credit them with beginning the strike in the first place by pulling the strings behind the scenes in a very Game of Thrones-esque plot to gain political power, or that they were even hired by firms on the other side of the state to disrupt Muskegon's production and to increase the value of their own competing mills. For their own sake, both men would claim to help because they were desirous to improve the working conditions of the laborers and were friends and defenders of labor.
At this initial meeting organized by Cook and DeLong, the following petition was agreed to. We, the laboring men of the city of Muskegon and vicinity, respectfully represent that the men employed in the several saw and shingle mills in the vicinity are compelled to labor 11 and a half hours each day, and that, in consequence thereof, they have no time for recreation or mental development. And, believing that a well-ordered society and stable government demand that the laboring classes have sufficient time per day, exempted from toil for recreation and mental improvement, therefore, we, the laboring men of this vicinity, in mass meeting assembled on Sunday, the second day of October, 1881, petition the mill owners of this vicinity, in view of foregoing facts, to reduce the number of hours of labor in such mills so that the employees will not be compelled to labor more than 10 hours each day, believing that the men laboring in such mill can perform as much labor in 10 hours each day as they can by laboring 11 and a half hours. We further petition you to cause such change to commence on the 10th day of October. The lumber baron's response to this was not what the workers hoped, and the proposal was rejected outright as the season was soon ending. This rejection led to another meeting on October 9 in which 4,000 attended. It also happened to be after a payday, so the men's confidence was high as they had spare money if it came to a strike. At the meeting, the workers formed a local union and elected leaders and began collecting membership dues. While not elected leaders, DeLong and Cook prodded the gathered and encouraged the unionization with speeches and exaltations. In the end, a strike was called for and according to the papers, some few thousand were out of a job, not just mill workers, but others tied into the industry. The initial stage of the strike had some successes as production of lumber slowed and a few of the smaller mills opened with 10-hour workdays. But the majority of mills stayed closed and protesters tried to block or intimidate those who tried to come into work. Ultimately, though, it was this violence or hardline approach that divided strikers into those who were more peaceful and those who wanted to use force. With this disunity and funds from the last payday starting to run low, the strike broke apart. By October 12th, the strike was over, with some mills operating at 11 hours, and others just closing up and waiting for the next season. DeLong and Cook, though, would not give up, and during the winter, they began Phase 2. DeLong announced his candidacy for mayor and invited a known Detroit labor organizer named Richard Traverlick to help them organize a party called the Working Men's Union, which ran a candidate for every position available. This party frightened the Republicans and Democrats into combining their candidates under a citizen's ticket. Even though they were underfunded compared to their rivals, the Working Men's Union won the day carrying most of the positions, including DeLong as mayor. Now with political power, the laborers continued the strike of the previous fall, making their first move on April 6th. On this date, the booming ground men were persuaded to strike, as without the booming men, logs could not reach the mills to begin cutting. The mill owners, though, had large stacks of reserves of cut lumber on the mill docks. Thus, the waiting game began between winter wages in the pockets of workers and timber supplies on hand for the mill owners who could still ship out limited quantities. During this period, letters went back and forth between the groups with demands and counter-demands, Tempers increased, and once again, some strikers turned violent and attempted to shut down any mill that was running with scabs or workers who had agreed to the longer hours. At one of these mills, two men ran into Newcomb McGrath, 
who was a lumber baron and in charge of the booming grounds. A fight broke out, and in the end, McGrath drew out a gun and fired it. When the man named Lawson, who had tussled with him, relayed his story, a group made an effigy of McGrath and hung it in front of his boarding house. McGrath would also be called out by booming ground workers as managing the company poorly. He would offer his resignation, but other members of the booming ground board refused it and decided to take a hardline approach. Part of this approach was to, in late April and early May, bring in 27 Pinkerton detectives to help guard property and help replacement workers get to the mill and booming grounds safely. Pinkerton detectives were men, and occasionally women, used by companies during labor disputes, but they could also be hired as bodyguards, spies, and detectives. A Chronicle article described them as such. They are a good-looking lot of men, cool and determined. They have been in the employment of Pinkerton for a term of years and have seen all kinds of service. They are dressed in dark blue uniforms, trimmed with large silver-colored buttons, bearing the word Pinkerton Watch. Each is armed with a revolver and cartridges, a billy and police club. The latter is filled with lead. As you can tell, things were starting to get very serious indeed. On May 5th, a train arrived carrying 83 stripe breakers from Canada. When they went to the booing ground to work, some 2,000 followed them, and even with their protection, the strike breakers decided against trying to break the strike and most returned home or joined the strikers. The next group of strike breakers had better success and began working at the grounds. More Pinkerton employees were brought in and minor scuffles broke out with handfuls of injuries on both sides. The fear that long term these men could replace them, and with members of the strike feeling a pinch to their wallets and food supplies, Division occurred among the strikers, as well as resentment towards DeLong and Cook, who had started the strike. DeLong, as a politician, also came under fire for soliciting bribes as a county prosecutor and for firing elected political rivals without due process. While neither of these charges were proven, the foundation of DeLong was crumbling and strikers lost faith in him. On May 25th, a large group of strikers met and agreed to go back to work at 11 hours a day for $2 a day, which was an early offer of the booming company. After this, the floodgates opened and everyone tried to get hired in before the spots were filled. With the booming ground workers back in place, the sama workers soon followed suit and were hired back in at the same rate as before the strike. They did, however, get an 11-hour day, 30 minutes less than before, and also achieved a 10-hour workday on Saturdays. So, a little victory had been achieved. The Chronicle estimated that the eight-week strike cost workers about $280,000 in lost wages, and it cost the mills a combined $1.8 million, although this was temporary, as the wood not cut during the strike would eventually be turned into cash. The story doesn't quite end here, though. In the fall of 1882, Francis Cook was elected to the state legislature and would go on to introduce the 10-hour bill, making the standard factory workday equal to 10 hours. In 1885, this bill would finally be passed. Cook would also work to create the Michigan Bureau of Labor to further help advance the cause of laborers in Michigan. All scandals aside, DeLong would recover his reputation and be re-elected mayor in 1883 and would later serve as city attorney. I would like to thank you for joining us today. If you are interested in more stories like this of Michigan's past, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you want to hear stories... On the mysterious side, call to reserve your spot on our Legends and Lore Tour on Thursday, October 11th.